Good morning, everyone. I also like to welcome you all to uh, ACBC. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors around here. Now, we are in Ephesians chapter 4 today, starting at verse 17, and it begins like this. So, I tell you this. Now, that is a no way to start a passage. That is no way to start a passage. You can't start like that. You should start with like once upon a time or sit right back and I'll tell a tale of a faithful ship or something. You know, you should do like that. But when a passage of the Bible starts with the word so, the first thing you got to ask is, well, so what? What is going on here? Why is this here? We've been 11 weeks in the book of Ephesians and we're only three and a half chapters in. We're going to stretch this thing out to Christmas. I'm telling you right now, it's just going to keep on going. And, um, Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus, first century church, third largest city in Roman Empire, huge temple to Artemis or Diana, the Greek goddess, and everybody goes there for stuff, right? To get what they need. They go there to buy their idols. They go there to get their holy parchments to take home that have special incantations for different issues at home. They go there to get their abracadabra uh, beginner's magic kits so they can do all that kind of stuff. They go to hear about Greek gods and Greek goddesses. And in the midst of all that hubbub and all that's going on, all the mystical stuff, they start to hear a little bit of other news. A fire is ignited about this one truth. And it's being talked about as one truth. That there's only one God. What? What's that about? And how this one God wants you. And they started to hear stories. And and they heard stories. And they get reminded of stories that they heard like a decade or two ago about what happened to this person named Jesus. And then a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, he comes and he moves in with them. He lives there for two years, helps them put the pieces together. And the first three and a half chapters, Paul is bringing people back to who God is and how much God loves you. How there's one God who created you because he loves you. And he loves you not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. And then he reminds them of the story. But somehow that relationship got broken. Because we've all done something that put what we wanted before what God wanted. We all lived our own life and not God's life for us. So Paul goes on and says, so God redeemed you. He had to buy you back. And he sent his only son to die on a cross so that he might pay for all the stuff and all the decisions and all the things that you might have done and you might have done to yourself or you might have done to somebody else. And it's paid in full, completely covered. And it's all done by grace. Grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But God loves us. And then Paul says, and now he wants a relationship with us. But not just you individually. It's not just a personal thing. He made us one body, one unit, one family, one church. And this is something we do together. Three and a half chapters that just tell us about the nature and the character of who God is. How much he loves us and how he just lavished that love on us. Last week we talked about how then Paul highlights why God gives us gifts. Individual gifts. That everyone has a role to play. No one's a guest. We're all family here. There's no spectators. Church is not a building. Church is the people, the family of God. And every one of us has a role to play in this kingdom. And we're not just allowed to be in the family of God, which that alone is just amazing. We're allowed to be a part of his family. But 
we also are given unique gifts and we are uniquely needed. And we have uniquely needed responsibilities that we're all supposed to pitch in with being the family of God. Which begs the question, what if I don't feel like it? What if I don't feel like I'm gifted? What if I don't feel like I'm uniquely needed? What what if I don't care and I don't want to be a part of this? Why is it that I don't feel like I'm being used by God? Even that phrase, spirit-filled and spirit-led, kind of weird, right? It's, It's like, how's that supposed to work? And now Paul has got their attention. He says, so I tell you this. I tell you this now. This is how it's supposed to work. Chapter 4, verse 17. You want to read on the screen, put up your phone, bring out your Bibles. It says this. So I tell you this. In fact, I insist on it in the Lord. Exclamation point. Underline, circle, highlighted. He insists on this. I'm going to tell you this. No, no, no. I'm not going to just tell you this. I'm going to insist on this. This is how it's done. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In their futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their, misunder- in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they were given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. Some of your Bibles might say full of lust. Paul's going, church, mate, Let me tell you, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you can't live like you used to. You can't live that old life anymore. You're you're living like those who don't know God. They're ignorant. They're not dumb. He's not saying they're dumb. They just lack the knowledge of this real and relational truth. They haven't found the real truth about who God is yet. So they live in this kind of ignorance, he calls it. They're hardened. They're hardened to God's whisper. They're hardened to God's leading and guidance in their life. They have no sensitivity to the things of God, to the spirit of God. And so he goes on that in life, they give themselves over to whatever they feel like, whatever their sensuality uh, desires at that time, their desires, their urges, their wants, whatever they dream up, they go and make happen. They continue to desire or greed for more and more and more. Remember that? Remember those days? Remember when you were living in a way that you're just constantly searching? Constantly wanting, and no matter what you got or who you got with, it wasn't enough. There was still this hole, this void. Remember those days going through life, and and no matter how much you got paid, no matter what title they gave you or what position you were given, it just wasn't quite enough. I I just need a little bit more. Remember going through life, and whatever vice you used to use to feel needed, or feel numbed, or feel better, or feel full. Whether it was something you would drink, or something you would smoke, or or someone you were with. There was always this this thing that was just always the law of diminishing returns. No matter what I was involved with, I had to continually do more, and do more, and do more, and get more, to get the same level of satisfaction. Paul's writing this church in Ephesus, Saying, remember those days? Remember all the way you used to live? You remember those feelings of being unsatisfied? 
just no contentment whatsoever. Remember that craving you used to have that you just needed to belong to something worthy of you, bigger than you. You wanted to be loved. You wanted to have a purpose. You wanted significance. You wanted to know why you got up every morning. He goes, that's the life you left, he says. That's what you had back then. They weren't good old days. They were just old days. That's who the people that are ignorant live with. They don't know the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so they live this kind of cyclical life, just chasing their tail, chasing and chasing and chasing, always coming up empty. And he goes, no, look, I got to tell you, no, no, look, I got to insist, he writes, I got to insist you can't keep living that lifestyle. You can't stay in that, that stagnant place. You didn't find a Jesus to take into your old life. You found a Christ. You found the Lord to get rid of the old life. Because Jesus doesn't want any part of the old life, Paul's writing. He died on the cross because of your old life. Why would he want to be the Lord of that? Which he had to go pay for the sins of that. It's done, he says. So I'm telling you, I'm insisting on it, that you must no longer live as they do. No longer live as you used to. And so he continues to write. So this is how it works. This is how you get out of that downward spiral. Picking it up at verse 20. It says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him the accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? Because that right there, that's my problem. Right there, that's my problem. My greatest problem with Christianity, my greatest battle with Christianity is me. It's me. My greatest struggle with following Jesus is Me getting in the way of that because of my own desires. It's my heart. It's my wants. It's my frustrations. Paul's basically saying, you came to know Jesus not to go back to your old lifestyle. You came to know Jesus to put off the old lifestyle. That one that's always battling inside you against him. So Paul writes, you've heard the truth. You've heard the truth of God. Now let me tell you why your Christian life is stalling. Let me also tell you why your Christian life is working. He goes, it's simply the difference of whether or not you've done this. Put off and put on. That's the difference. Now that's all the verses we're looking at today. That's it. So I want to stop here for a little bit. We call ourselves Jesus followers, right? We call ourselves Christians. So what do you do next? What does it mean to follow Jesus? To be a Christian? What's it look like? How do you grow and become more like Jesus year after year after year, no matter how long you've been following him? Paul gives us three and a half chapters about who God is, what God's done for you. And now he's kind of what he's doing. He's kind of saying, I'm now going to go after the lies 
of what we tend to believe Christian growth is all about. And he kind of attacks four lives, four myths of what Christian growth is like. So we're going to look at four of them. And then we're going to look at what Paul says to do instead of that. So myth number one is that spiritual growth happens automatically. Automatically. I think there's something in us that says if you just come to church, if I just come to church, you know, I don't know, two times a month, if I just come to church, or if I can't come to church, I don't feel like coming to church, if I just at least watch it online, say, I don't know, three times a month, then eventually I'm just going to become more like Jesus. It's just going to kind of happen. Because if we just come to church, I mean, we're going to grow, right? I mean, that's what it's for. Because spiritual growth is something that just kind of happens. And the more you just kind of hang around church stuff, the better Christian you become. But the more you just kind of hang around church stuff, the reality is it's just the more bored you become. So let me give you the truth about this. The truth is... It's a process that takes some time. In fact, next to process, if you're taking notes in your little note sheets, put down intentional process. It's an intentional process. You got to be proactive in this thing. Intentional. But it will take some time. Think of anything, anything you're good at. How much time did it take you to get good at that thing? Anything you've ever done where you go, I have mastered this. Did you master it just automatically? Or did you do some things to become a master of that skill set? Like, ever playing sports? Ever playing sports that you were actually good at? Um, how many hours? How many hours of practice did you put in? How much time did you put on the field or on the track or in the weight room or in the pool? Uh, remember how much time it took to get your shot down. Remember how much time it took just to get your shot down, just to kind of straighten out that hook. Right? Just straighten that hook where you lined up and you get your waggle on and you're all ready to go and you kind of go chin down, chin up, chin down. Is that comfortable? Yeah, that's comfortable. Elbow up. Like it's the most awkward sport in the world. And you, you kind of go down and you go, you got to go, dang it. Oh, dang it. I've been doing this for 10 years and I'm still hooking to the right. And, and, and it's like grip here, face there, open the face there, chin down. Now just hit the ball a little bit straight and that whole time you're kind of losing your salvation while you're playing, right? The whole time. Just golf is one of those things that makes you pray or makes you walk away from God. One of the two things. Remember how much time it took you to learn that kind of thing. How much it took you to learn how to play an instrument. All those hours you sat at the keyboard. All those hours you sat on the bed with your guitar. All those hours your parents left the house till you were done practicing because it was just so awful. And, and you're like, I'll never get this scale down. I'll never get this down. Yet for some reason, we think that when it comes to spirituality, Growing with God, becoming more like Jesus, we think, ah, you know what? It'll just happen. It'll just happen. And I think he'll just give it to me. See, spiritual growth is an intentional process. That's why we call them spiritual practices. It's going to take time. You got to be diligent and commit, committed to this. Like, who here has ever tried to lose weight after the age of 45? Yeah, me neither. I just forget it. Like, how do you get this toned at this age, right? Um, I've whined about my weight a while now. And uh, I don't know if you've ever met Mark Phillips. Uh, Mark Phillips is probably one of the best pastoral care people I've ever seen. He's just got this kind of gifted passion to care for people. 
And he's heard me kind of whine about my weight way too many times. So just a few Sundays ago, he, was, he goes, can I pray for you? And then he kind of said, hey, Brian, do you want to go to the gym with me? And I'm like, what's your point? And he, I said, he goes, you want to go to the gym with me? And I go, do you have a gym membership? He goes, yeah, I, I, go, like, I go once a week. I, spend, I go once a week on a Thursday. I take about an hour and a half. It's all it takes you to do. Why don't you just come and get you a guest pass and we'll just go. So I go with him to the gym. So I go to the gym, I get my guest pass, and he shows up, and he's got his spandex and his little sweatbands and all this kind of stuff, and he's pumping out. And he's got this drink. It's like kale and kelp and carrots all mixed together, and he's sipping it like, oh, yummy. I'm like, you know, you both know this is not any good. I don't know why you're drinking that. So we go there, and I said, look, I'm just going to stand back and just watch. You do your routine, I'm just going to watch. So I just kind of stood back, and I just kind of watched him. And he went in there, and like everybody knows Mark. And he goes on, hey, mate, how you doing? He's talking to this guy over here. And he goes over to the weight bench. He's talking to that guy over there. And he goes over to the lat pull-down machine. He's talking to that guy over there. Every machine that had nobody on it that was free to use, he would walk right past. And he would only go to machines that had people there already. And he would talk. And he would give them some uh, advice. And look, you got to stand with your feet shoulder width and bend the knees. Don't bend the back. He kind of do this. And about an hour and a half, he kind of goes, oh, look, i got to go. So he comes back to me. And I'm like... You haven't touched a single weight. We just spent an hour and a half here, and you just walked around with this kelp drink, <laughs> sipping around this drink, talking to people, and you're going to go. And, I, and so he goes, come on, I'll give you a ride home. So we get in the car. I go, Mark, how's this routine working for you? He goes, it is great. He says, these people, it's like they're like family. It's like I walk in, I met everybody. They're like family. I go, have you like lost any weight or gained any tone? Is that like a normal workout? He goes, yeah, that's kind of how it is. I've been here eight months. No change. I haven't, I haven't gained any muscle or lost any fat, but it, it will work. It will work. I, I know it's work. Now, I know you're thinking that when Mark comes to visit your house now for a pastoral care visit, you're going to lock the doors because this guy is nuts, right? <laughs> All right? That is like the stupidest story you've probably ever heard. Because it is. I, I totally made it up. It's not true. <laughs> not true at all. That is not true about Mark at all. None of it's true. But as, <laughs> but as I describe it, you're laughing at it, right? And you're thinking, this is so stupid. Why would you waste your time doing that? But when we come here, we come here on a Sunday to HCBC, and we do exactly that, we don't see a problem with it, Right? We come in, we go to the cafe, we grab a drink, we kind of walk around, we talk to a few people, we love them, have a few small talk chats, we sit down for about an hour and a half, we catch up with some friends, and we get up and we walk out. And we expect change to happen by doing just that, once a week for about an hour and a half. We expect spirituality, we think we're growing We expect that we'll become mature Christians walking around with our special clothes and our drink and just kind of chatting up a few Christians. We expect that the Spirit of God is going to change us from the inside out and that we'll become more useful for the kingdom by just showing up on a Sunday. Yet we've already decided that story is stupid, right? We all thought that was stupid. We don't walk around with a drink in our hand and come to church for an hour and a half And even though, look, I've been coming here for about eight months, and I'm sure I'll change over time. And if not, I'll just go to another church because that pastor, that music's not doing for me, so I'll go somewhere else where it might affect me better. 
You can spend 80 years doing that. And I promise you, you will not see any spiritual growth. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen because you come to a place to sit and listen and watch a little bit. I was talking to Rachel about this talk, and she reminded me of a saying that our friend Ian Grant used to say. He said, sitting in church doesn't make you any more a Christian than sitting in McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger. And it's kind of that idea. We all know, really, that that's not what changes you, right? What we know is that it's God. God makes that life change in us, right? He makes it in us and through us, right? And that's myth number two. Myth number two is God's the one who makes us grow spiritually. Now, hear me out before you walk out on me. God does work in us. It's true. But what God does is he empowers us. He motivates us. He prompts us through his spirit. But we have to act on it. The moment you become a Christian, you don't become remote controlled. The moment you become a Christian, you don't become some kind of religious robot. The moment you become a Jesus follower, God says, I'm going to give you everything you need in this life that I'm calling you to. But it's your choice. It's your obedience to be it and do it that you have to decide upon. See, the truth is the result of spiritual growth comes from the result of our daily decisions. See, Paul couldn't be any more clear in this passage that it's our responsibility. This growth thing to become like Jesus, it's our responsibility. He says at the end of verse 17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Whose responsibility is that? You must no longer live. It's ours. I'm going to insist, he says, on the fact that you have to make a decision to not live that lifestyle anymore. Then verse 19, remember, he reminds the Ephesians that the Gentiles, meaning the non-followers of Jesus, have given themselves over to sensuality, meaning they just indulge whatever they need to indulge at the time. Paul says that's their decision to do that. See, here's our problem. Our problem is not getting the world to live like Christians. Our problem is getting Christians to live like Christians. See, you can choose to follow God. You can choose to follow your own desires. You get the choice. Choose God, choose your own wants. Build your kingdom or be a part of his kingdom. And Paul writes, that's a decision that only you can make. Remember he wrote in verse 22? You were taught with regard to your formal way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. God's got this. He'll erase all those bad desires. He doesn't write that. He says, no, 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 no. I'm teaching you have to put off your old way of life. And then in verse 24, you need this new life, this new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So if you've come to know God, you've come to decide, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. He's the Lord and leader of my life. I will follow him. Well, now what do you do? Paul writes, God's going to empower you. He's going to give you conviction. He's going to guide you with his spirit. He's going to give you his spirit. He's going to give you his strength. But you got to choose to use it. It's not a gift if you don't unwrap it. You're the only one that can make the daily choice to act on this. Because it's your choice. We all have a part to play. God's not the one that does it for us. 
He partners with us for us to do it. We have a part to play in this. It's our result of our daily decisions. He motivates, he empowers, we act it out. We live it out. Okay, now, this is starting to make sense to me, right? This is kind of making sense. You can't come to church for an hour and a half and expect change. You can't walk around with a drink and kind of chat with some people and think there's going to be this inward growth and be more like Jesus. You can't sit back and just allow God to grow us internally, kind of mystically and all that kind of stuff. We, we obviously have to make an effort, so we need to train, right? That's what this is going. This is making a lot of sense now. We need to read the Bible more. We need to go to life group, and we need to take notes and discuss it, right? Third myth. The third myth is that we've got to grow more when we start learning more. See, the truth is, when you look at Scripture, it's not about knowing more. It's about living it out. It's about our behaviors over our beliefs, it's about how we live it out, not how much we know. The book of James, you go through the New Testament, the book of James is written by Jesus' little brother. Jesus was also the leader of the church in Jerusalem after the crucifixion, after Jesus ascended, where it all happened. He was the leader of the church in that city, Jerusalem. Earlier in the Gospels, we read that James came with Mary and his other brothers and sisters to try and get Jesus to shut up. You're embarrassing us. Get out of this public ministry thing. Um, you're embarrassing us. You're talking crazy. Just come home. And then they watched their brother get killed for what he was saying. Awful day for the family. Deeply sad day for the family. And then three days later, they watch him rise again. And he walks with them. And the little brother looks at Jesus and goes, okay, I think I missed the point. I kind of get it now. I missed it, but now I see it. So James writes a book. He writes a book. Jesus' little brother. What's it going to take to prove to a little brother that you are God? I don't know. Maybe you die and come back to life again. Tick. Jesus did that. Okay, I'll pay attention. So James writes this book. And in chapter 2, he says this. I say you have faith, that you believe in God. But the problem is you don't have a lifestyle that shows it. He goes on. Let me ask you something. Can that kind of faith save you? He goes on to write in chapter 2. He goes, look, I'm not going to tell you to have faith. I'm going to show you. I'm not going to tell you that I have faith, he writes. I'm going to show you I have faith by my lifestyle. My lifestyle will show you what I believe. And then he ends that argument in that chapter with a phrase that we all kind of familiar with. Because faith without works is dead. He goes on to write, he goes, even demons know God. They know God and they shudder. You think they have to learn more about God? No, these demons know all about God. These demons once were in the presence of God. They know who God is. It's not about knowing. Because if it was just about knowing, they couldn't be a demon then, could they? He goes on that. It's not about learning. It's not about taking notes in church services. It's not about just going to a life group and filling the blanks in. It's part of the process. It's an important part of the process. But Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples, not by how many verses you have memorized. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another, not by the way you learn with one another. By the way you love one another, it's about how you live it out. You know, back in the day, way back in the day, I used to play sports. I played gridiron, I played basketball, I kind of dabbled in martial arts. And, and 
there was not a part of me when I was training for gridiron or basketball, whatever. There wasn't a part of me working against myself. I wouldn't be running for a pass, looking to catch the football, thinking, you know what? I think I'm just going to drop it. There's the touchdown. I think I'll just drop it this time and see what happens. There was nothing in my mind saying that. There wasn't a part of me that I was running with the ball, kind of going towards the, the other team, thinking, you know what? I think I'll just fumble right now. Just, I think I'll just drop the ball. Nothing in me said, just drop the ball. Week after week after week, I would go to practice day after day after day, and I would train repetitively over and over and over again so that I would instinctively catch the ball and pull it in tight, that I would hang on to it no matter what was going on around me. But what's different about spiritual life is that there's an old self in me telling the new self, hey, just drop the ball this time. It's okay if you fumble a little bit this time. There's a little thing inside me, a little old self inside me that says, drop the ball. You know what? Run the other way. Run the other way. You don't need to get on the field at all, in fact. Just take a day off. Because becoming like Jesus isn't automatic. It isn't just God's responsibility. It's not about learning more. It's making a choice every day how I will live, not what I will know. It's more about my behavior than about my beliefs. It's deciding day after day after day, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, God, as I wake up and I pray before I put my feet on the ground, take my hand and guide me through this day. Even though things all around me are swirling and there's things inside me that are swirling and warring against all that, I'm going to fall through with this. Okay, so we have our drink in our hand for an hour and a half every Sunday, uh, uh, once a week. We have six and a half days a week to live it out. They work together. But it's about the six and a half days a week that you live it out at home or at work or your neighborhood. That's where you start to see the growth take place. And then the fourth myth that Paul has highlighted before, and we remind you now, is that the myth is you can do it alone. Christianity is not a personal faith. It's not a personal faith. God never created Christianity to be an individual sport. It's a team sport. This is something we do together because dad wants us to grow up in a family. That's the whole point. He wants us to do this together because he knows their strength in numbers. Look, if we're going to reach the people of Hamilton City, people who do not know Jesus, people who do not know the truth, people that are stuck in that, that cycle of, of not being able to get out and no matter what they find to relieve the pain or, or take care of the problem, it continues to, uh, continues to just feed a craving instead of, instead of satiating a craving. No matter what they fill it with, it doesn't take care of their desires. God says, look, all of you at HCBC together reflect the truth about my son Jesus. As you follow him together, as you serve him together, people get a glimpse of my son. People are looking and they need to see something that looks like my son because that's actually what they're looking for. He goes, you are my plan A. There is no plan B. And I've wired you to look more like my son when you do it together than when you do it by yourself. I mean, think about that shallow picture when Rachel throws it up. Hey, join the shallow renovations. We pick up a picture of just Hamish by himself, rowing a wall all by himself, tumbleweed. Ooh, I want to join that. 
They'll put a picture of here's six, seven, eight people out of the 12 that are helping out. And they're like, oh, okay, that actually looks kind of exciting. We're wired to look more like Jesus when we do it as a family. It's a team sport. Because the reality is church is kind of like Duck Island ice cream. Church is like Duck Island. Duck Island, you can go there and you can try every single flavor they have and not buy a thing. It's wonderful. They just give their products away for free. It's the worst business model ever. Or it's the best. Because they know that once you taste this, their product is so good, you're going to take home three liters. And you're going to take out a mortgage on your house to pay for it. They know what they're doing. So does God. See, his plan doesn't include us just showing up for you know, an hour and a half, two Sundays a month. His plan is that we live out our faith together, that we help each other out weekly, daily together so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good. So when they just show up and try it out one Sunday, I promise you they will take a liter of this stuff home When they see the way we love God and we love one another and they get a little glimpse of what Jesus is about. So if those are the myths and those are the truths to those myths, what do we do in order to grow? I'm going to just kind of quickly wrap up with three essentials that Jesus, uh, that Paul gives us for what it means to grow as a Christian. And number one, he says, we need to put off, put off. You were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There's a story in Acts 19 about the church in Ephesus. And in that story, around verse 11 or so, I think, um, there's a story about the seven sons of Sceva. And the seven sons of Sceva, these are Jewish, Jewish guys where they're hearing that Jesus cast out demons and stuff. Paul is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So they're like, we can do this. We can do this. And as you read that story, these guys kind of rile in like the Magnificent Seven. And they run in to a demon-possessed guy's house. And they all go in there and they go... In the name of the Jesus that you've been hearing about from Paul, we cast you out. And the story says the demons go, okay, we know Jesus, and we know about this Paul, but who are you? And then they attack, and and this demon-possessed guy attacks these seven guys and just pulverize them and beat them up and rip off all the clothes, and they go running through the streets of Ephesus, naked and bloody, beaten up by this demon-possessed guy. And as people heard about that story, you know what happened? People in the thousands gave their life to Jesus because what they realized was there's power in the name of Jesus. There's not power in the name of the people who know Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. And they go, when people do this in the name of Jesus for his story and his glory, things happen. So these mystical people came and brought their scrolls of all their incantations and their their little medallions. And they just kind of brought it to the city center. And it says it was worth like 50 dollars, whatever it was. And, um, and they burn it and they give it and they lose all this money and they give it and they go, we give this old life. We give away this old life because we're taking on the new life with Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, 
we get, any pastors gets the privilege of seeing this happen all the time. I remember as a youth pastor having numerous guys, teenagers, as they come to know Jesus, give me a call and say, come to my house, we gotta take care of business. And I would get there and they would collect all their, all their women's magazines and their playboys and their penthouses and all these different things. And we would go in the backyard and they would burn it. And they go, I just want you to be here as a witness. As I burn this, I'm giving away this whole life. I had a couple of guys, and they, this is all money. They spent a lot of money on this stuff. The other guy would get all this music that was all this kind of truly satanic music. And it, you play it backwards, and it would just say, this is truly satanic music. And they, um, and they would put all this music into a bucket, and they would burn their CDs. And they go, we give up this whole life. There's stories like this all the time. It happens all the time. We have to give up the old life. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I don't have any nudie mags. I don't have any satanic music. So what do I need to get rid of? The reality is, if we were sitting out in the cafe after church having a cup of coffee, and, and you would say to me, look, I don't know where to start with this. All I'd have to say is, you know what? You're smart enough. You're smart enough. You don't need to say it out loud to me. You know exactly what it is that you need to do right now to get rid of whatever remnants of the old life you're still living into. What you're living into right now, what you're watching right now, who you're with right now, I bet you know, we're not idiots. There are some things that you know you need to get rid of to truly 100% follow God. And you're like, yeah, I, I do know what it is. You can go home today and make a list if you want list the top five things you can do that that you know God needs you to get rid of so that he can work in your life to change your heart might be actions or attitudes or lack of forgiveness or gossip or greed or finances whatever it is but the question is what's the stuff that you're not allowing God to be completely in control of that's all Paul's asking here secondly Paul writes we need to think differently think differently Verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. See, as Jesus follows, we have to think differently. All of these passages we read today, verse 17, their thinking. Verse 18, their understanding. Verse 20, learned. Verse 21, taught. Verse 22, minds. It's being committed to a process and saying, there are things that I can't have anymore. I've thought about it. There are people I can't be around for right now anymore. I've thought about it. It gets in my way. I have to think differently. There's a plan. I want to be a part of that plan. And I got to think differently to be a part of God's kingdom plan. And it might mean as simply as because we think differently as Jesus followers, instead of retaliating and getting even with people, we respond to hurt with kindness. It might be that simple. But also I think it means to look at the world differently. Some of the most creative uh, Eugene Peterson writes, the most creative people on the planet are Jesus followers. But then he also writes, the laziest people on the planet to not follow their great ideas are Jesus followers. See, I don't want us to be a cookie cutter church. We all vote the same way. We all look the same way. We all do and act the same way. No way. God's too creative for that. I want us at HCBC to be a church that totally reflects God's creative innovation. And that happens when you think differently and you come up with new ideas and new activity and new ways to point people to Jesus with unique um, methods and organizations and, and, and mission and purpose and all the new things you start because you think differently when you work, when you work with and look at the pain of people in this world. 
Romans 12, 1 simply says this. Therefore, here's what your spiritual act of worship is. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern this world is... Uh, world would be transformed, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Then you're going to know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will for your life. Want to know God's will for your life? Think differently. Don't think like everybody else in the world. Step back and say, WWJD. It was a cheesy thing, but it worked. What would Jesus do in this situation? And then finally, we put on something. Uh, Deacon, can you put that on? There you go. Um, Verse 24. To put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying, look, start acting like a Christian before you feel like a Christian. Start acting like a person God has called you to be, even though you're still trying to figure out what kind of person God's calling you to be. We don't go to the gym get all sweaty and grotty in our workout clothes and then go to the locker room afterwards and not take a shower and just put on our work clothes on top of our workout clothes and go back to work that afternoon. You look good, but you stink. That's not following Jesus. He didn't die on the cross to cover up your old life. He doesn't want anything to do with your old life. He died on the cross to get rid of your old life and to give you a new life. Why walk in the same stinky life and think Jesus will bless it? Paul's writing, look, congratulations, Ephesus. You found the truth of God. Congratulations, you're walking with God. Now put off all that stuff. You know what it is. Go sit down and have a think. You know what it is. Now start doing what you got to do. Start walking with Jesus. Start walking like Jesus. Allow the Spirit of God to give you conviction and strength and courage, but then you choose to do it. Now, when I prepared for today, I was very cautious knowing that this could sound like one of those drive-by guilting type talks. This is more like a locker room talk. And we're hearing from the coach, and we're reading his playbook, and he's saying, look, come every Sunday for an hour and a half, get a drink, talk to people, But while you're here, let the coach coach you. But the game's played out there. For the other six and a half days a week, go play to win. This is watch the video from last week. Learn from our mistakes. Be reminded of the gifts and the talents that God's given you. And then the rest of the week, you go play. And you play to win. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Sometimes... Sometimes your passage just reminds us to get serious and convicts us to make an effort to follow you. God, may we quickly be people who rise to your challenge and realize that you ask us every day to choose to be obedient, to choose to know you, to choose to be like you in every aspect of our life. God, give us that courage and that strength, that power even, to walk away from that old life and give us the strength and the courage instead to listen to you, to maybe make a list of the things we got to get rid of, the last of the remnants, so that we can follow you 100%. God, let us fix our minds on you and the things of you so that we can keep stepping into the game you've called us to play for your glory, for your mission, and because you've already won.
In Jesus' name, amen.